Hey, this is Ross Payton with Role Playing Public Radio. This is the Game Designers Workshop panel at Gen Con 2014. Caleb and I hosted it. Uh, but before we get into the panel itself, I just would like to mention we have a current Kickstarter right now for an adventure for Base Raiders, my superhero RPG. It's called Boiling Point. Uh, I am publishing this. Uh, it's a book by first-time author Peter Nielsen, who was a long-time listener of RPPR, and uh, now I'm collaborating with him to bring his his vision to life. Uh, even if you've never played Base Raiders, uh, this is a great time to get into it. You For uh, $25, you can get all the PDFs of Base Raiders, uh, including the main game, the adventure, uh, and all of our other supplements for it. Uh, but if you're a fan of RPPR, I, uh, please look into Boiling Point. Uh, we have an actual play of the adventure on the AP site, and part two of the AP is available to backers right now. So uh, thanks and enjoy. I don't. Uh, all right, this is RPPR Game Designers Workshop. Uh, yeah, we're the, games. Yes, we, talking about them. We are making our mistakes in real time. Yay! Uh, Wait, what? The sound. <laughs> yes, the sound educational tradition of uh, publicly failing for the benefit of others. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, this is this is about our uh, the, our little side podcast and uh, the games we're designing and any games that you are designing. If you want to, uh, advice of people slightly ahead of you, not yeah. not experts by any means, but just a little bit there. Like, uh, yeah. so yeah. Well, um, yeah. Has every has everybody listened to the Game Designers Workshop series on Role Playing Global Grado? Everyone okay. here. Uh, if, if not, uh, the the basic premise is that we are both uh, freelance game writers. Uh, but we've yet to design our own system. Uh, and so uh, in the interest uh, of helping people, rather than just doing it and then looking backwards and then doing podcasts about it, we are uh, documenting it in real time as we finish certain tasks. Uh, so yet again, uh, screwing up uh, for the benefit of others, uh, as you can see, an actual timetable and how long it takes and things that delay that and individual concerns. Right. Well, you're designing the system from scratch, right, yes. Marcus? Yes, yeah. Um, I am actually started work on a second role-playing game. Uh, my first one, Base Raiders, is an uh, OGL license game. Uh, OGL means Open Game License. Um, it, it uses a version of the Fate rules called Strange Fate, which originally comes from Kerberos Club. Um, Base Raiders is a superhero game, so I didn't want to create a superhero system from scratch Ugh. because... Yeah, no, exactly. I it's been done, and I'm not a masochist, so. Um, and I I chose Strange Fate over Means of Masterminds for a variety of reasons, but I like it. Um, and so I'm working on a second game. So while Kale's doing doing everything from scratch, I am uh, adapting an existing OGL license engine out, which is uh, for my next game is going to be a Gumshoe license game, a Gumshoe engine game. Um, which is focused on investigation. It's, uh, has everyone heard of Gumshoe? Everybody knows, yeah. From Pelican Crest, Trail of Cthulhu, Fear Itself, uh, Nice Black Agents. And so my second game, which I haven't, I, I've mentioned a few times in the podcast, but I haven't really talked about it, is called uh, Ruin. Uh, just choosing the name was a lot of work because I'm doing a lot of nebulous kind of, it's very easy. One of the first things I found about doing this is like it's very easy to come up with something that's already been done because you already have it. So if you're doing D and D but with different skills or races, that's really easy to bang out. But like if you, my concept is like this sort of architectural horror is like my what the phrase I use for, it, but it, it's representing this sort of subgenre of horror that's focused more on place 
than on monsters or a conspiracy or something like that. So think like uh, the big two examples I, I, I always refer to are Silent Hill and House of Leaves, uh, where you have haunted structures that are unearthly and they re- reveal you know the people who go into them, you find out what their flaws are and how they try and survive um, this sort of chaos. So for Ruin, uh, I'm using Gumshoe because it's really great for investigation and survival horror, which is what I'm trying to focus on. Um, but right now, I'm getting into the new mechanics. I can't, I'm not just reprinting it and typing some setting material up, which you could do. Like You could just focus on setting and use the rules. Um, I'm adding new mechanics to sort of represent that genre as well. And uh, So for me, I'm at the point where I, I've written up new mechanics for Gumshoe, but now I'm just beginning to test them or work on them to figure out if they will um, make it, well, if the, if the engine will break it, because Gumshoe makes certain assumptions about what characters can and can't do. Like, the biggest one is abilities in Gumshoe are investigation in general. Investigation abilities you spend in order to gain information or benefits or some other benefit. Uh, general abilities are ones you, you, you may spend, but you don't have to in order to get bonuses on a D6 roll. Um, the main thing is with Gumshoe, it says the number of investigation points per character is based on the number of players. The more players there are, the fewer points there are. What I'm trying to do is something where a character generation is done during the game itself. So, the number of players, I'm trying to leave out the number of players per session. So, like, every, every, it could be, it could change. So, I'm, I'm taking that. So, I'm, my concern is I might be breaking, making, giving characters too many investigations or not enough. So I'm, that's something I have to find out through playtesting. But that's sort of where I'm at overall. And we can go more into that uh, later. But again, this is very Q&A focused. Um, but that's why, so I'm doing game design. Yay. Anyway. <laughs> nice summary. I know. <laughs> Elegant. Uh, it, for those who haven't listened to the podcast, the game I'm designing is called Red Markets. It's a horror economics game. Uh, it is a zombie game, but rather than just being scared of zombies, oh, they're bad. Uh, there's only a partial apocalypse, so part of the world has zombies and the other part does not. And as such, the part of the world that does not have zombies wants to recover stuff from the part of the world that is taken over with zombies. So there is an underclass of smuggler uh, that must make a living by, uh, you know, venturing into this horrific, uh, nightmarish wasteland and recovering things and committing jobs, and the uh, the monsters in the setting are as likely to kill you as you are to die from running out of money. It is an economic horror. Uh, you have to spend money on things, and once you've spent money on your gun, you have to pay for ammo for that gun. You have to pay for upkeep. You, you have to meet an overhead before you can save up. And uh, it deals with the fact that being a player character in most games would be a horrible, horrible existence. Like, you exist to, you know, raid dungeons and risk your life for uncertain gains. Like, we have those people in the real world. We call them horribly impoverished. Like, uh, it would not be a good way to live as an adventurer. So the, the goal of the setting is to retire. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. I would like to get a job at Starbucks where no one tries to eat me. Um... And so it's sort of an economic critique slash fun kill zombie games. Um, so that's what I've been working on. Uh, and what are the episodes we covered so far? So we came up with concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, we did one on feedback and playtesting. Feedback, oh, playtesting. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> 
Uh, there's the crucible. Uh, and, yeah, and so we're covering those things as we get more into writing. I've written like almost thirty thousand words of the game now, uh, and we did some play testing, and huge swaths of it are broken, as every game system anyone ever will design. Uh, and so I need to start rewriting that, and that's where I'm at currently. But we're gonna do episodes as we go on about like the stuff that people often have panels about too, like. Economics, marketing, kickstarting—like, how do you get money to make this thing? How do you do? Oh, and we could, we could also talk about freelancing since both of us have done. Yeah, that. and we can talk about that kind of stuff. We've, now, uh, we're not total noobs in that area. Uh, um, I've written a lot of stuff for like um, Third Ed D Twenty Modern to Eclipse, uh, Eclipse Phase, um, Monsters and Other Challenge Things, Scalesburn for Eclipse Phase, and Arc Dreams, Arc Dream, and now Superior Game, Better Angels. Yeah, uh, yeah. So. Um, yeah, if, if you guys have games that you're designing and you have questions, or if you have questions about the process, or yeah. if you have questions for us... Uh, yeah. Woo! Stop! I'm sorry you're not having as much fun as those people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they, they must be having a great panel. Yeah. I can start with questions. This one is actually sent to you from something not at Gen Con. Ooh. What I told them I was coming Techno- We're living in the future. I know, right? <laughs> um, <coughs> and so he said, question is, how does your design philosophy and approach differ when you're designing a game on freelance or commission versus when you're working on something that's entirely for yourself? Well, I mean, you're playing in someone else's sandbox. That's the biggest thing. Like, if you're doing freelance work, commission work, work for hire, uh, you have to work within the confines of that. Uh, setting and what they wanted you have to respect what they want to do with it so you may have a great idea for it but like if the guy says we have a ton of NPCs in this game stop making up new NPCs use the ones you already have you know like, all right we, we, we will do that but like I have this great idea for this faction or this setting or this material and be like no that's not the direction we want to take that so you have to play by their rules that's the big that's the biggest difference as opposed to like you know red markers like you want to add unicorns in it, you know, like you you could make it about zombies and unicorns or zombie unicorns and no one can stop you. Uh, yeah, I mean, <coughs> I can stop me because that's a terrible idea. Um, I disagree. But I, if I was writing for him, I couldn't add unicorns. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so that's the thing. Uh, I think in any game design, you need to have a clear goal, like a thing this game's going to do. So the thing I want Red Markets to do is to, not realistically, but model in some form uh, real-world economics, because I feel like they're entirely left out of games, uh, and then uh, also model the sort of psychological horror of capitalism itself. Like, yes, there are zombies, but it's because I didn't want to make, like, Migrant Worker the RPG and be horribly exploitive. I, I want to point out, like, the fact that the basic system of modern-day economics is pretty terrifying all by itself before you start putting, you know, necrotic creatures in it. And that's my goal. So everything in my design has to go towards that goal, and you need that goal. The thing is, when you're freelancing, someone made that goal for you. And you've got to do that. And the thing with freelancing is, you have to go into it aware of that person's goal and design philosophy, or if you pitch a game that's outside of it, they're not going to listen to you, and be completely willing it to go along with their vision of it. So... One thing you can do when you are freelancing, though, 
is try and bring something in the setting to the forefront that hasn't been brought before. So oh, yeah. when I go for Eclipse Phase and I wrote the devotees for them, which is an adventure, and the way I pitched it is just like, you have this wonderful transhumanist setting where you're fighting these uh, totally scary, uh, monstrous alien AI creatures. And yeah, it's awesome. But then I was like, your technology is so far advanced that there's lots of scary, evil stuff going on before you bring the monsters into it. Like, people are pretty awful. (laughs) I want to write a scenario where you think you're going after some big space titan AI monster, but it's really just like, man, people suck. Like, you really just found out that people are just evil sometimes. And like, so I want to explore that level of sin. And they were okay with it. But when I pitched that job, I had to accept the fact that if they're just like, no, make it about space monsters, I have to be like, no, yeah, you're right, space monsters, definitely. Thank you, sir. <laughs> uh, and, and, and be okay with that. And it's like for anything, if I want to write uh, My Little Pony RPG, and I want to bring up the fact that like you know, ponies have a grim, dark, criminal underground of like paid assassination and exploitation like that's what I want to focus on and they're just like no the ponies have friends and they can do friendship I have to be like yeah you're right I'll write about friendship ponies like you, you, you have to acknowledge that going in that even if you do have a definite focus but I think the one consistency across is have that focus whether it's the focus somebody gave you or uh, the focus that you made for yourself have a single focus for the scenario or the game you're writing to aim for. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just going to be like a sprawling mess. Oh, mechanics. You don't want Cinnabar and GURPS has already been made. So. Yeah. <laughs> so you can't do, yeah, yeah. So. And GURPS has a focus. Realistically model everything within GURPS. Like, we have this dice mechanic. We're going to make it work for any possible situation anyone could look up. This is a game for people who don't like coming up with rules on the fly. They want to have some sort of supplement where they can look up what mass combat flying pegasi rules would be. Lo and behold, if I get these four books together, there it is. It still has a singular focus. Like, we want to do everything. We want it to be as flexible as possible. So, does that help? Yeah. All right. So just text all that to your friend. <laughs> and <laughs> we are recording this, so we'll go up on our PRs on the way. So yeah, you have a question? So I know there's no right way to do this, but I'm more asking about your experience with it. When you're designing a system from scratch, mm. and you figure out all the ways that the mechanics can interact, how do you figure out what numbers and dice to use? Uh, well, you kind of feel, I would... I know how I would approach it. Uh, one, you kind of want to think about what base... I mean, break it down first into, like, a percent of, like, probability, like, what you want to do. I mean, if you're doing some sort of odd mechanic... The thing uh, you might... It might be a little harder to do, but th- figure out, like, if I, I want an average dude, like a level one dude, or my base fighter dude, starting PC, to be able to do X, Y amount of times. You know, I want to be able to shoot a guy from 100 yards with, like, 50% accuracy. So, like... You set up your mechanic to kind of model that. Uh, online, there are several programs that will tell you what the probability of various dice rolling mechanics are, like what the chances of rolling a perfect 18 on 3d6 are versus uh, threes or two ones or whatever else. There's several of them out there. So you can like use those statistical programs, those probability analysis programs, to figure out where your dice lay or what, like, what kind of probabil- probability you would get. Uh, and then you can kind of look at the look at whatever 
mechanic you have and break it down into a probability and then just kind of figure out yeah, I want to be able to do this amount of time. So that's how I would do it. Uh, yeah, to give a hard example, the, the dice mechanic for red markets is you have a red die and a black die, a cost die and a profit die, and you roll those two d10s, and you need your black to be higher than your red or you don't succeed. And the way you get your black higher is you either spend your uh, you know gear or, or add cost to things, or you use a skill to add to it. Um, so I figured that out. Or both. If I if I give ties to the market, if I give ties to failure, you have a forty five percent chance of success for rolling two d tens and succeeding at base. Uh, and then if you had plus one, it goes up. If you had plus two, plus three, plus four, beyond plus four, you're looking at like ninety percent, uh, you know, massive chances of success to the point where the game's not going to be challenging anymore. So I looked at those probabilities. And I'm like. I need a very slow progression curve with expensive advancement in terms of skill, and I need to cap it at like three or four so that you can be very good, but you are not invincible in regarding a certain skill. And I wouldn't have known that if I didn't have, you know, run probability curves. Because I thought about doing D6s that same way or D20s that same way. I thought about minusing one from the other, but you, you look at the probabilities. And also for me, in terms of citing that, like, you should make a game that hasn't been done before, or like your your main focus should be not like I want to do it like Pathfinder Two because you know I'm sorry you're not going to sell that game. Uh, it may be very cool, but it's going to be a heartbreaker. So you sh you should do something that game try and do at least one thing that a game hasn't done before. You don't have to be original in every aspect and reinvent the wheel, but you should try and do something that hasn't been done before, and then you should look at why that hasn't been done before. So like I'm doing economics. That's not done before, and but I realize that you guys are all RPG players. Everybody knows about the shopping party at an RPG, where everybody's got the gear book and like, ooh, I want this, and they're like, how much story is taking place there? Ooh, this kind of, and that's that's a big slowdown in economics in games, like why they don't focus that much on materialism because it becomes very slow. So I realize that as a design aesthetic, if I'm going to get my economics as a narrative function as an emotional reaction thing my game's got to be all about speed my games would be like don't look in that book here's what it is i rolled this dice it's very clear what happened it's all about fast 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 so like the first one was like subtract the red from the black no that's too long is black higher than red i know why i succeeded now go like uh and then I have, a lot of, uh, I have a lot of rules in there for randomly generating things for the GM, so like it would be very slow to generate an actual market, because if I have a scenario I want you to run and that's what I prepped, if you're like, well, I don't find the value of that scenario worth going towards, I'm going to take a different job, actually, actually it happens in a market, you haven't prepared for that at all, you can't do a job. So the GM side of thing, it's, it's literally you roll two dice, it gives you a supply-demand curve, you know how much that new job costs. You roll some more dice, you know what that job entails. You need to go here to get some bicycles for some people who don't have gas in this market. Like, and, and then you're just generating stuff on the fly as quickly as possible. And, and that's, that's a secondary goal, but you can't determine you need that unless you have that, I want my game to do this idea. Whereas if I was just making a mechanic to make a mechanic, I might not know that speed is important. And so you might have to do like 40 levels of math just to determine if you succeeded on a single die roll. Well, I mean, to go on that, um, 
Yeah, get universal games have already been done, and I think all the really successful games out there today have a strong thematic core. And sometimes the theme is mechanical, like we I want to do, like there's a new game called like the Iron Throne that's coming out. It's not based on Game of Thrones or whatever. It's like heir to the Iron Throne, or something like that. It's made by the same people who did the Riddle of Steel uh, back in the day, and it's thematic core is like you know. You know, fighting with big metal swords, that's really dangerous. Like, people die. Like, it's four feet of steel that goes in you. You don't live from that. So it makes sword fighting both, comp like, tactically interesting, but also insanely lethal. Like, you don't just go into fights for the hell of it. Your character could die in, like, one hit or something like that. And that's an interesting space in fantasy games that hasn't been done, because in D&D, you know, you're like, I'm at one hit point. Ah, I kill you. I make my full attack. I do a backflip. Oh, I'm at zero hit points. Now I'm bleeding down, you know. Um, it, <laughs> that, that escalated quickly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, after being like, oh, Dragon Breed Fire Army? I'm level 20. I can take 90 hit points of damage. I'm a level 1 peasant. Oh, well, I'm, I'm dead. I'm more than dead. They can't even, the Necromancer can't even raise my skeleton up. Um... So you have to have some sort of, so it can be mechanical or it could be narrative based or it could be a combination thereof, but you need to have, why are people going to want to play your game, you know, and it can't be something that like, oh, I could do that in System X. Oh, you go through dungeons and kill monsters. I can do that in Pathfinder. I can do that in D&D, but like, I, zombie, yeah, yeah you're, you're playing an illegal worker fighting zombies or what, something else, or like in Ruin, you're doing Silent Hill slash House of Leaves type survival horror. Um, that's my idea for that. So, uh, yeah, thematic is really... Yeah, because you have to think about the marketplace. I mean, the whole point of making a game is so that other people will play it. Like, I, it surprises me how people, how many people want to be writers or artists or people, creative types, but they don't want... They don't care if other people actually read or experience their work, you know? I like... I'm a writer, blah, blah, blah. I don't... I'm not going to put any effort to getting my stuff out so people will actually read what I write. Like, you're communicating. It is inherently kind of a social thing, so. Uh, so so yeah. to give another example, like, uh, one of my bugbears in game is healing. Mm. Like, I love how you get knocked down to, like, negative two hit points and your, the rest of your party is dragging your bloody corpse behind them and they barely save you. And the next game, you're just like, all right, woo! <laughs> feel good like there's no like colostomy bag there's no physical therapy you're just up you're just up and doing great and so like but that's the thing if my focus was healing in the game I have to deal with the fact like well why do games do that why do they not model that well well A it's depressing <laughs> B it takes a really super long time and C you're not doing anything during that long time besides being worked on it and healing and things like that. So if I wanted to make a game that realistically modern healing, those would be design things I have to jump. And and that's the thing. Once you think about that main goal and then you start realistically thinking about the obstacles for you, you can laser focus on a problem and you don't have this sort of analysis of paralysis. Oh, I have to do everything at once. No, your problem isn't that. My problem is oh, I have to get over the pressing. So, uh, I will make it a magical, fun world where it's just cartoony characters doing stuff like that, and, and then I have to make it. Uh, I have to make it uh, or you take less time. So then, uh, the game itself will be about a healing a person. It will not be about uh, you know healing from something that happened. The game won't take place in the dungeon. The game will all be about afterwards, and then I have to make it active. Oh, I want to make my healing game active. 
but the patient can't do it. So I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm making a game about doctors now. My game is about doctors that help people, help dungeon crawlers come out of the thing. And so now I've got a story game, and now I've got a genre. So I'm going to watch a bunch of house. I'm like, oh, like, well, if you want a diagnosis point, you're going to have to start an affair with the nurse and have a tawdry love triangle with the healthcare administrator at, you know, Dungeon University uh, or something like and so now you're getting like kind of quirky in your building setting and stuff like that but it's just because you have like a point to aim for in the distance yeah anything else uh, right it's a question about market research why do you think gamers are going to buy a game about economics uh, I don't know that they will uh, I think gamers will buy games about zombies based upon Kickstarter still existing and yeah. you know uh, that kind of stuff and I think gamers will buy games about horror and, and things of that nature and I think I love those games so I hope I can make a good one uh, so I do think it, it, it will go on that uh, as far as the economics angle uh, I'm not sure how many people it's gonna hook but I feel like at this point in history people especially in the Western world, are more aware of economics than they maybe have ever been before because of the subprime mortgage crisis and uh, the economic recession. And, like, there was, like, three years ago where I could not turn on the radio without someone, like, analyzing, you know, you know uh, mortgage-backed securities or payday loans or something like that. And, it, it, and that's what got me interested in the topic at all. Uh, so, so there's that. And then I feel like I could say something. I feel like I can sugar the pill... Uh, of something I want to say about economics, which is like I don't. The world is scary without monsters, like, uh, but but without being exploitative, because it would be horrible to be like Afghani opium farmer the game, like that. That would be horrible and exploitative. But that's something fiction can do. It can take this fantastic element to talk about a very real world topic, and I think people could have fun at the same time because it's something they're steeped in now. We are. Uh, it's called the podcast. So um, <laughs> that's a, my point. Is like, uh, yeah, it is one thing to think, look at the market yourself, and kind of, kind of think what's hot, what's popular, and like you know, you have like the history of capital, uh, that book that just came out this year, like being a bestseller. Mm -hmm. There's tons of discussion about it. There is the Occupy Wall Street, blah blah blah. But that's all your opinion. Uh, in terms of doing objective research, well, not maybe objective, but like externally validated research, i.e. seeing if people want to play this game, uh, you could do worse than starting a podcast uh, and sitting out or talking to other podcasters and trying to get them like get interested in your material. Um, other ways to do that would be starting up a blog or uh, to talk about your own process or talk about or just go on a message board and here's my idea. What do you guys think? Um, and just get people interested in your ideas or yeah you know, there's i mean the, again the internet is about communication there's a ton of ways to communicate with gamers now uh i mean google plus is basically being held up by gamers like they're the only group of people that i've ever heard of who liked totally using google is. plus yeah like it's a ghost town aside from people talking about orcs and dungeons <laughs> like i yeah good move job good good job google i mean you're, you're not going to eliminate the element of risk 
by yeah. any means. But uh, and we really haven't covered this yet on the podcast because we're trying to break it down into like digestible chunks by subject matter. But like the first thing we do when we get to marketing or kickstarting, the first advice I'm going to give is make friends with a guy with a successful RPPR <laughs> podcast, uh, and then generate content from him until you can share in that fan base. Because like, yeah, that's a that's the thing. If I was like in my house, not at Gen Con talking to you. Not on a podcast every single week, making my economic zombie game, and just threw it on Kickstarter with a hope and a prayer. There are Kickstarters that do that, and it gets ugly real fast because they haven't generated any kind of web presence. Um, I mean, there's different types of marketing, too, and marketing research. Like, one, figuring out what whether your idea has interest is one thing. Uh, but then doing marketing for an actual Kickstarter is a whole other beast. Kickstarter is about capitalizing on an existing fan base or an existing community of people. Um, and there are no overnight success. I mean, RPPR is, is by RPG, the, the, the very, very niche standards of RPG podcasts, uh, you know, successful and uh, fairly popular from what I can tell. But, um, you know, I started that in 2007. And it's basically been a part-time job for me. I put a lot of time into it. So... Um, like, if you guys, I mean, are any of you working on specific games that you're wanting advice on? Like, like what stage you're at on something? Uh, like, I mean, it's better to look at concrete examples than I'm, speak in generality. So yeah. if there's something you I mean, want. if you want to talk about marketing stuff, like, uh, look at Evil Hat. Like, the thing about the gaming community is that it's so amenable, it's so supportive. It's, in many cases, unless you're talking about you know, uh, a big, big franchise, uh, just so, so, you know, ravenous for content that you can make a market there than perhaps easier than you ever could in any other oh, yeah. private sector in, in entertainment. So like fate is a million dollar Kickstarter. 10 years ago, fate was a hack of a fudge dice system. They made products and they made a fate marketplace and they made a fate demand and then they made a Kickstarter that made a million dollars. Like, you know, you, it, it's a long game doing that much success, and you have to be really bright. Yeah, the, the economics. Woo! Market forces! Uh, yeah, yeah, you guys are into it. Yeah. Uh, but, but, uh... Wow. We must be talking about Friedman in there. Yeah. Uh, no, no, John no. uh, I don't hear any screaming. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, you can yeah. you yeah. can make a you can make an audience for you can make an audience for your your book. So like you I'm not to. I'm not doing gangbusters on this, but it's a demon possession supervillain charter school simulation RPG campaign. Yeah. Yeah. They're breaking down the doors for that niche. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I did the campaign as an actual play before the Kickstarter even went up. Like, there were people listening to it. It was being supported. It's for an already existing game group, an already existing game company that has distribution and marketing in itself. So, like, if you're worried no one's going to do your Love on the Wards RPG hospital game, uh, that's a fair concern, but it doesn't. It's not like a permanent stop right there. You can you. That's a design obstacle that you can aim at and jump over. Like, I mean, there are like I've seen successful Kickstarters um, from people who are just popular and frequent member uh, postings on uh, certain message board sites, like something off or RPG.net or some of those bigger sort of tabletop game communities, and like. 
uh, they'd say they'd just post to people like, hey, what's going on? I'm doing this and doing this. And then it's like, hey, my guys, my Kickstarter's up. And people go, oh, man, this is a great idea. I love this. Um, so it's it's again about building a community of supporters. And, if you, uh, if you and, and that's at the but that's at the Kickstarter level, which yeah. is very far. Yeah, it's advanced. You need a game for like yeah. the thing about Kickstarter. In the last it, it, Kickstarter started really in two thousand nine, and even before that, there was fundable.org. So the whole crowding crowdfunding movement started really like around two thousand six, two thousand seven. Um, and then even the first few years of Kickstarter, it was more on hope and dreams. And people were like, hey, I want to do a thing. Uh, give me money. And people were like, all right. And so, but now the most successful Kickstarters are ones like, my book is done. I just need money to pay artists and the printer and I can send it out. They're very sophisticated pre-order systems. Some like, of them, yeah. some of them are some, I mean, yeah. like it depends on the kind of, t- tabletop RPGs are very much you do better the more confidence people have and like a lot of that is based on your work history or your reputation um so yeah I mean do you have a project or a game you're working on that you want to no I was interested in why you thought a game of economics would be popular generally if you mention that to a game just like that I'm hoping a game about economics is popular well uh, I yeah. mean, <laughs> but the thing is gamers talk about like we anal- overanalyze everything, and we were just so. I mean, I was just over. We were just eating a little while ago, and I was showing Caleb uh, message boards posting on something awful. People breaking down the skeleton action economy in Fifth Head. Skeleton uh, proletariat. The skeletons are way overpowered, and people b- built charts to show, like, oh yeah, by level 16, a wizard with the maximum of skeletons can kill a dragon in one round. And, like, there were. F- like, I mean, it was impressive, and this is just over. Fantasy wizards talking, killing people with. And, and then on the forums, they talk about, well, if I can raise skeletons to do anything I want, it's going to collapse the economy. Because I know I have to pay laborers for actrology. So I have these skeleton migrant workers that work for nothing. And then that's going to cause a huge collapse of. And I'm like, I want those people. That's my demographic. I want them, but I want them instead of making fun of 5e to like have. Use those, like, let's talk about the depreciation of gold when we raid Atlantean ruins. I want those people, instead of just doing it as a joke, to use that to tell, like, more serious or scary stories. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's going to work or not, but, you know, you never will until, until you try it. I, I think if you're going to launch something on Kickstarter, your first idea should be, like, what should I already have done before I launch this thing I want to be successful on Kickstarter? Like, yeah. I'm a big fan of ransom projects if you don't have anything out there. Be like, here's the bare minimum I need. I need 600 bucks to make this thing. If you give me 600 bucks, everybody gets it. I'm not going to sell it. I'm going to put it on the internet. You get to put it away. And that is a huge marketing tool because your name is now recognizable. You're the guy who did the thing and gave it to everybody for free. Aren't you nice? Let's give you more money. Like, uh, it's, it, 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 and it is nice, but at the same time, yeah, it, there's not, it's not as if it has no benefit. Like, yeah. Anyway, are there other questions? Uh, yeah. Um, so, you're making a game about economics, you're making one about architecture before, but um, yeah. how much talking to experts do you do? Like, economists and architects, and how much do you think you um, I mean, for me, for I know Caleb's actually talked to economics, uh, economists, because like again, his game is about modeling economies. Uh, for Ruin, right now, I'm doing a lot of reading on our like I say architecture, but it's really a game about place, like the the influence that people have on place. Like people think, you know, and the thing about place and how we use space uh, and how space influences us. Like people think 
we build a city and then we build roads to go in the city, but that's not how it works. We build roads first and then cities spring up around roads, you know, um, and it's that kind of thinking about how uh, this has influence over. So if you're in an unnatural place, a place that is warped by evil magic, by monsters, by this contamination, how, how does that influence you? How are you going to survive? How, and people, you know, um, one of the things I'm really in, influenced by is like the, uh, there's a place, there was a place in Hong Kong called Kowloon Walled City. Um, which is, I know, uh, about creepy architecture. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, well, it's, it, it was actually sort of this space that was like not when the Britain, Britain, uh, the UK controlled, uh, Hong Kong, uh, they had this one area that they didn't really have legal enforcement powers or they just kind of ignored. And so people built this incredibly dense, cramped, uh, settlement that like within one square mile they had 50,000 people and this is where people would go to like open up butcher shops and pastry shops and like dentists and barbers because they didn't have to worry about uh, licenses and regulations and that's the kind of place I'm interested in because one of its look and two because again it's a place uh, of exception like it only exists because other the authorities are ignoring it you know so what happens when nature the universe ignores this little spot and things even getting worse um, so I haven't I, I'm reading a lot about architecture I'm doing reading uh, like I've got books on Cobicier the uh, French architect who's very popular and very influential in like brutalism like every oh. yeah if you've ever seen a building that looks like it belongs in the Star Wars uh, Hoth, like a like a fortress bunker, it's made of concrete. It's just ugly and radiates evil and hate. Like that's brutalism, and like that was super popular in the fifties. Yeah, that's and, an entire design aesthetic. There were literally people who was like, "Hey, you know, maximum security prisons. Let's make this preschool look like that." Yeah. And like from or a this horror church. perspective, yeah, or this church, or everything. Yeah. Like from a horrific perspective, if you're talking about like cosmic horror or like Carcosa, yeah. or like like places where reality starts to to be in question other mm -hmm. than like not just like a slasher flick where you're worried about being stabbed like yeah that stuff is really useful like but like when you read the history of it you find out that they were in reaction to earlier architects who were like they viewed them as state and like conservative and like architecture was a form about you know to challenge the aesthetic of the, the proletariat of the common people you know to, the, to push the boundaries and um, so I plan to talk to some architects after I get some more reading. Because one of the first things I realized, I don't know a goddamn thing about architecture, and I really want to. Um, one also thing I'm also really influenced by are actually video games and how video games use space and level design to control the influence of the player, to manipulate the player. Um, I really like games that play tricks on you. And, like, um, there's a whole genre of video games. The genre doesn't have really a name, but, like, you go like you go to this place like this abandoned or ruined place, and then you find like all the people who used to live there are dead. They're always dead or gone or missing. But you find letters or diaries, and you're like, oh god, the monster! I'm just doing maintenance report. Oh god, a monster! Uh, audio logins, you know. Um, and see Dead Space, Bioshock, uh, any number of you know, talk, yeah. huge AAA titles, uh, and that that's kind of a big. And I love how they influence place and like how they you know uh have how the level designers use the architecture to sort of like hey this is creepy this is something that is in the uncanny valley it's not it's normal but it's damaged and now it takes on a sinister overtone so i plan to do research and talk to architects but i'm not at that level yet so that's part of the work is just getting to that level yeah i mean i mean think about how did you find this place are you natives to indianapolis do you need to work in this building 
How'd you find us? Think about the sheer crazy psychological manipulation and infrastructure that went into you getting here like they had to put signage they had to make sure it looked dull enough to not be confused as advertisement they had to publish entire books of like things there had to be internet servers there's somewhere in a basement there's like a supercomputer humming that helped you come to this room right now and that's just like basic design like how do i get how do you find the right gate at the airport how, so like yeah architecture has tons of that kind of stuff yeah. looking i i i am a uber nerd and i live next to a college so i go ask like collegiate scholars about my games and my the reason i do is because i want to cut out all the parts that aren't fun so yeah. like if i have an imperfect understanding of an economic concept I'm just going to throw it all in as I find it. Whereas if I can have this person explain it to me and let me know the right things to read, and I have been doing that, um, then uh, the the kind of idea is that you know they they uh, you can cut out all the parts that are fun because I don't want people doing actual economics in the game. I want the feel of economics and the sensation of the certain thing I'm trying to say about it. I do not want anyone like doing massive future forecasting formulas or anything like that. Uh, the Six Sigma cheat in the game. Yeah, no Six Sigma. Zombies six quarter. Sigma zombie murder. Yeah. Best practices zombie murder. Um, so there's that. But then I also, I've also talked to architecture and city designers because uh, the basic premise of my setting is that there is a section of the world that is not infected by zombies that have quarantined them off. And one of the things I'm going to do is make operating in that section really hard for the players that are out in the wasteland because everyone, like, the all of society has changed. Like, if anyone gets into a fist fight in the street, everyone pulls out guns and starts shooting them. Like, because... Back when it started, if one person had seen that street fight and not been like, oh, that dude must be drunk, and just shot him in the head, half of the world would be alive. So everyone's crazy paranoid, there's different law structure. And then I talked to a city planner, and we came up with something called quarantecture. So new cities divined solely off the premise of quarantining biological outbreaks. So cut off cordon cities, uh, like all sorts of stuff from cities on siege about yeah. the militarization of public space, like those uh, roadblocks where you see uh, you've got divider, divider, then a little space, divider, divider, so you can't, you have to weave and you can't go straight in with a car bomb, like that kind of stuff, and there's lots of books about that and that setting material, and I hadn't thought about that until I talked to him, but he's like, research Paris before the siege, research like old castle stuff like that was quarantecture we can cut off that part of the city and leave it there however long it takes we'll be fine in here uh so yeah and it's just it just i find that when i research stuff like that i'm like oh my concept is way cooler now because i hadn't considered adding that into it before i mean there's a certain point where you have to stop researching yeah. Uh, I mean, like, one thing you could do is, like, go and, like, there's a lot of stuff written about, like, refugee camps, like, there's, which mm-hmm. is a big thing now these, these days, and how they graduate. <laughs> the refugee camps are really popular. Yeah. Uh, there's, like, a whole book called Shadow Cities talking about informal settlements, illegal settlements, and that kind of stuff. And, but, you know, at a certain point, you, like, and you can just go down that rabbit hole forever. So, like, I mean, I'll do a lot more work on architecture. But, again, it's, it's a game uh, about... Um, not just space, but it's all, you know things like The Shining and like uh, Escher and just like Tricks of the Eye and Perception and stuff like that. So uh, that and yeah, part of my problem is that it's such a high concept thing that I'm trying to like make it like I keep cutting stuff out and like no, I need to strip it down to a, a bare essential and then start writing because like holy crap, I've spent a long time just getting to this point. So just 
I've written like maybe ten, fifteen thousand words, and I deleted about that many. So like, uh, yeah. Yeah, research to look for things to not include. Yeah. Like, don't don't look for things actively to include. Be like, well, that's not going to be fun at the table. That's going to be. And when you find stuff that you're just like, oh no, that's just cool. I have to do that. Yeah. Like that's fine, but you need to look to things to exclude because like you're never going to be a simulation. Like, no one's ever going to confuse this for fighting a hell beast. Yeah. Like, no matter how hard you work, uh, you're going to model it, like, to certain levels of effectiveness. Yeah. Parts of it. And you just need to pick your parts. Yeah. So. Any other questions? Oh, yeah. Um, going to, like, uh, design-wise, like, as far as, like, the systems and things like that, how much research do you put into, like, looking at pre-designed systems? Like, if you come up with just, like, a setting in your head, yeah. and you want to apply that to a game... Or if you want to make your own system, how much research do you put into other systems first? See, yeah, yeah. I mean, Caleb's brave for doing it. I would never design a system from scratch. I'm like, no, I'm lazy. And there are words already written about this stuff. Uh, I will I will do that. Um, so for me, like for Base Raiders, which uh, is a game I did before that's a superhero game, and there's uh, a lot of superhero RPGs out there, so I looked at them all. And one of the big things for me was uh, the open game license. Like, the thing is, if you're a new player or a new game designer, you can't just uh, copyright law is weird. You can't you can't copyright game mechanics. You can't copyright roll a d6. That's your hit number. Or roll a d20. That's your hit number. But you can copyright exacting words. And so um, you technically can rip off games, but it's very tricky and. It's a defense in court. You can always be sued for things, and then the defense just means it's thrown out. So even being also brought, morally wrong, yeah, also morally <laughs> wrong. Um, so I looked for open game license, and so for that, for me versus uh, mutants and masterminds, so, uh, for me it was more licensing like than anything else because I didn't want it to pay money. I didn't want to deal with like mutants and masterminds licensing thing, which was looked okay, but like that's not compared OGL. Just use it, copy your license. And then you separate what is product identity versus game mechanics. So, like, you can specify this part is the open game content. The rest of the book is still my stuff. You can't copy it. Um, so that's how I did that. Um, and then for Ruin, Gumshoe, again, it's OGL. And I really like Gumshoe. It's a really cool system. Um, and... So those those were my practical considerations. Was just like, what can I get that's licensed, that's available to me? I, like I, I agree. With, like I'm a hobby noob. I've been doing this for like four years max. We're talking like I played my first role playing game four years ago. I'm not like most people at Gen Con. Hey, There's hey. like, wait, lo, it was in the 1984. He's one certain bot. Like you had the uh, world of darkness. Remember? Oh god, yeah, <laughs> the one world of Garrick McSane, uh that I ran from. Um, so like, there's that. I don't think you should do a new gaming system for your setting or idea if there is a gaming system out there that you can use that will also do it. Like, so, I think Base Raiders is an example. Um, I, I don't think anything about what Base Raiders does requires a new system of superpowers. Uh, and I think Ross was wise to make that choice. I think Base Raiders covers material not covered at all by other superhero games because it deals with this inherent ideological problem of the will to power, as in you can't be a superhero if you want to be a superhero. 
the only way you can be a successful superhero if is you stumble back asswards into it by being bit by a radioactive spire or getting a piece of shrapnel in your heart or gamma radiation. Or being chosen by a space cop. Yeah, or, be, or being chosen by a space cop. The second you try and get that stuff, you're Dr. Octopus. You're Dr. Doom. You're Mr. Freeze with the horrible motivation to save his sick wife. What mm-hmm. a jerk. Like, you know, like the second you want to do something like that and, and sort of rise to power, you instantly become evil. And I think Ross's game is perfect for that. It is like, it's DIY transhumanism. Like, I want to be more than human. I'm going to do it. Uh, the the gatekeepers are gone. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think it's great. And I think that's important and Base Raiders does it really well, but it didn't need a new system for that. Like, for, for me or Red Markets, I did a lot of research and we did a whole episode on other game systems that I hadn't read and I wasn't familiar with, which you should definitely do if you're not, like, really super versed in the hobby. And, like, I've considered Gumshoe for a long time. Yeah. But the narrative economy of Gumshoe does not translate into the physical economy of Gumshoe. The 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 very, like, there's very few weapon tables. There's very few like that. And games that are obsessed with materialism, uh, everything from, like, D&D and these huge gear splat books for Shadowrun, things like that, have these huge ideological blind spots about capitalism. Like, you you spend capital to get money you could spend capital to get stuff to get more capital like you never buy a house you never eat food you never like support little cindy's ballet lessons you never do any of the other things that an economy does like you have this like magical thing that takes you to a minimum basic income and then you spend all your money on murdering orcs better <laughs> and or or shadow running better and stuff like that. so i realized that there are games that have done materialism really well with none of the ideological implications and there are games that have done the ideological implications really well that pretend like things don't exist like fate i couldn't do my game in fate no. Like where where your superpowers are personality quirks. Well, like um, uh, so, and gear just breaks that kind of stuff. So you know, um, as, as an aside to the fate thing, um, recently we did, I did an episode of Unspeakable, uh, the podcast mm-hmm. with Ryan Macklin. If you want to hear about Ryan Macklin's difficulty in like doing horror with fate, <laughs> uh, you should take a listen to that. So uh, that's like the newest episode, episode 11. Anyways, that's just an aside. Yeah, like when, when you carry the force of your personality with you and your force of personality gives you superpowers, it's very hard to make someone uh, powerless enough or in danger enough for horror to work. So like, I, I wanted to make my own na- game system and so I considered things, but I picked Red Markets out of a, we did a whole podcast about like games I might want to write one day. Yeah. Do you remember like three mm-hmm. game hooks? And I didn't pick, I picked Red Markets instead of any of those because like, I figured I could do those and if I wanted to create a new system, I needed this uh, concept that needed a new system. I didn't need a concept that could be another fake hack. Because yeah. if, if I want to design those rules and practice, I need something that is worthy of the effort. Does that yeah. make sense? Uh, I mean, like, going on Base Raiders, like, there are things in Base Raiders, uh, mechanically, that I added that I don't think any other superhero game yeah. gets. Like, one thing for me is, like, characters have their superpowers at character generation, and then they're just fixed there. But in comic books, characters gain powers, they lose powers, they get different powers, like, all the time it's a common thing. So, and certainly, if you the premise of your game is literally go to the super dungeon and get 
potions of superpowers, like players are gonna be like, well, I don't want to sell this. I want to drink it. I want to have more superpowers because that's awesome. Uh, so like, I had to have rules about getting more superpowers and balancing that kind of as a game resource. And then also, uh, superpower superhero games. Like, it was also critique because in superhero games, the whole thing is like, there's Mr. Fantastic, he has his flying car, literally his flying car, cold fusion, all the stuff, but like, everyone else is driving around in gas powered car, and we still have cancer, like, jumps. <laughs> Suck it, planet Earth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're he, cool in the Baxter Tower, everything's. Fun. Yeah. Like, well, Mr. Fantastic is like, we saved you dicks from uh, Galactus. Yeah. Know? So, like. Now I'm going to sit in this tower and laugh down at you, puny humans. Yeah. yeah. So, like, the whole superhero comics are about preserving the status quo, so I want to be about the opposite, which is about changing the world so I've I added a system about like changing the game setting like you can cure cancer in your game you can like rid the world of crime you can conquer the galaxy by setting as a goal and then I give you milestones to do that so but all that can be done within the context of a game engine it, I don't feel I didn't feel like yeah, you can those things on and stuff yeah and, 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 it depends on what your your narrative focus is and what or what your store or game focus is so that uh, and playtesting is such a nightmare if you can use another system yeah You've just saved yourself like a year of time. Yeah, or usually. Two. <laughs> Especially if it's like something like a really good game designer's done, like Dumb Shoes, like Robin Laws. I'm like, yeah, no, I, I trust you. You could just. Um, uh, and then, yeah, Fate, Strange Fate was done by, like, the guy who wrote Strange Fate has now done the Atomic Robo RPG. So I chose the right horse, so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in terms of uh, what games to use. Um, so, yeah. other questions? Any other questions? Are you guys? Is any? Are any of you working on games that you want to? Yeah. What are you working? Well, I'm, it's still in like early phases, but I, I know you guys have touched on how like the rules kind of determine what kind of story the game tells. Yeah. And I feel like fantasy RPGs generally like don't actually tell a very good story about combat, especially like one-on-one -on -one combat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's so like I'm basing rules on interactions between two combatants. And just Kind of oh, like a dueling system. Decisions. Yeah. So, yeah, like, fainting versus... Yeah, 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 just, like, how to use your weapons. I mean, and, yeah, that's a space that certainly in fantasy RPGs, I think, exists. I mean, like, I haven't played the Riddle Steel or the Iron That's why I want to get them, to try out the whole, like... I, like, and what I do is I just give everybody five pre-generated ninjas and see how long they last, you know, just, like... Because I just want to see them hacking and slashing and just want to try the rules out. Um, and I know there have been other, like, Burning Wheel has a some sort of system like that with fainting and parrying and stuff like that. And, and with that focus, I, but I, don't know how I would well. caution, you're looking for the feel of that. You're not looking yeah. for that. Like, real-world combat is depressingly simple sometimes. Like, in terms of modern combat, stay out of the kill zone or make sure someone other than you goes first. Like, that's most modern, like, like uh, it's depressingly, like, luck-based and unsatisfying uh, at the table and things like that. So it, it should be key that once you have that focus, you're going for the sensation of that in the narrative. You're never going for it exactly. The closer you go towards the sensation and the further you go from this is how it actually works, then, then you're you're better off. So they say uh, L5R has uh, dueling, Legend of the Five Rings, and they actually do a fairly good job. Because like, they have normal like battles and they have one-on-one -on -one duels, which is a completely different skill for like, because samurais, you know, you had your dueling, and then you actually had real combat, which was two different things. They do a pretty good job of actually modeling that, but I don't yeah. know if it's as in depth as you want. Yeah, I mean, like you survey the stuff, and you don't yeah. feel like there are yeah. So there are 
games out there that have tried that, whether or not they succeeded, you know, and, uh, you know, a lot of games have tried, like, a lot of different things, and, like, a few of them, like, no, nobody's done economics right, nobody's done, like, adding on superpowers during gameplay and stuff like that, so... Uh, there's space out there for your game. So anybody else? I think we're... And that's the thing. If you're doing your focus, yeah. read all those other games for research. Steal like a bastard <laughs> from them. Like, like if it aids your if it aids your main goal and your goal is something like hasn't been done in the market and you're still doing it, if you're taking other things from other mechanics that aren't copyrighted and that make the game more fun, do that. Like... Definitely do that. It aids the it aids the goal. Like and it, you just gotta have that singular focus because it's it's real easy to lose the uh, the forest for the trees. Otherwise, oh yeah, no. Yeah. There's so many games out there that like, especially in the '80s, it was really common to go the Phoenix Command route, where like windage and trajectory of bullets and like uh, elevation matter for shooting people, and you're just like, wow. Calcul- calculus at the table, like, yeah. legit, like, oh, this is the cool but, I mean, And you can go far the spin the, of the earth. Like. Yeah. And you can go too far the other way. I think, like, Beta Accelerator would not, is good for one-shots, but I don't think it would be good for a campaign, because character powers are so nebulous and just kind of like, yeah, I'm awesome. I just do awesome things. So mm-hmm. I get plus two to awesome. And, like, that's not really helpful. And that's so. great for a certain brand of storytelling, yeah. but, like, Yet again, if I was writing a game about the mental and emotional deliritous effects of poverty, fate's not the way to go. Yeah. Like, everyone's having a great time in fate, as, you know, it's very good for, like, pulp kind of stuff. But, like, in terms of games along the Call of Cthulhu line of, like, people who are into depowerment and people who are into, like, struggle and things like that, yeah, you, you need something else that does it. So. True, true. Uh, anybody else working on other questions? questions? Yeah, working on stuff. Yeah. I got a, uh, I got a apocalypse game that I'm demoing. I uh, got eight sessions in the And uh, I'm doing a totally free, free license. By apocalypse, do you mean like apocalypse world engine or just like post? Yeah, no, it's, a, it's a system that, that I've been Okay. Beta testing it for a couple years now. But the, uh, the thing is, I don't care about the Sure. Ransom it. To like, pay for production costs. I mean, you yeah, to pay for production costs. So you like you put it on a Kickstarter for the bare minimum you need to buy art and layout, and then be like, I got it. Here it is. So just put it up. Like uh, that. That's a great way to do it. Like, and you, Godspeed, sir. I mean, if you don't want to pay for or art or layout, or if you just want to do it as a, like. Plain text, or if you can do, can you? Are you doing the art and layout too? I've got some artistic friends, and also I've uh, ganged a bunch of art uh, military field manuals because there's lots of really cool. Yeah, oh yeah. Uh, anything from the U.S. government is copyright free. Yeah. So like, you can steal from NASA and the military and stuff like that. They can't, they can't sue you for copyright. Uh, Pelgrane just photoshops old photos that are. In- the Hackmaster does time. too. Yeah. If you look at the pla- Hackmaster player handbook, That's a the nice leather-bound one, they use a lot of like 19th century painting, early 20th century paintings of like knights and stuff like that. So uh, you can, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just because you don't want to make money off it, it, I mean, just get it out there then. I mean, that's great. Like, you, you still want to make it the best game you can be just because yeah. that's why you're doing it. Uh, one thing that, going through it now, that I think I, I, I get more than, like, if I were, like, Kenneth Height telling you how you go to design a game, because no one tells Kenneth Height anything anymore, yeah. uh, is that you're, you're running an apocalypse game, right? 
the second you open it for comment is you're like you're gonna, you should do it in apocalypse world you should do it in this you should do it like everyone has their hobby horse religiously devoted system and i'm not saying those are bad systems at all but if you wanted to do it in apocalypse world you would have done that and not design a game like at some point you have to know when that criticism is just somebody being a evangelical gamer and not actually giving a critique on what you are trying to do. The only reason I decided to put in all the effort to make my own thing from scratch is because I, I looked at the apocalyptic games that are out there, and they're always one particular kind of apocalypse, it seems like. Mm. Or, um, they're never really good at what happens after you've established a group of people that can kick in on that. And so I wanted to make a game about how do you reboot civilization, starting with getting along with your friends, building a little settlement and then trying to... Yeah, that's... Yeah, no, that's a good point. Like, um... Let's rediscover textiles, guys! Woo! Yeah! Uh, Remember no. penicillin? That was great! How did that work? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was an idea for a GURPS game uh, uh, based in Fallout where the... I was going to do the thing, they come out of the vault and they do that, but that fell apart, but, um... GURPS, yeah, they had mass combat rules and they had organization rules, but they didn't have anything about, like, rebuilding or colonizing that yeah. kind of, like... Uh, Civ Five civilization kind of thing. So uh, uh, yeah, I would urge I would urge you to to market it enough that you can do like a release that people are gonna look at. Don't don't just send it out as a word document. Like take take turns to get eyes on it and get people playing it because it's gonna be a better game. Like if you're doing it for the art factor, like there is something to be said for the sort of evolutionary selection of the market and meeting it at that, that level. And as long as you don't go overboard. And be all you know, crazy businessman Gordon Gecko of gaming about it. Uh, you're just you're gonna make a better game for making it something that more people are gonna look at and consider. Uh, and yeah, you don't have to worry about like selling out or anything like that. And and yeah, it, it, when you just ransom a product and you put it out there and people start reading it and you don't have to mess with like distribution or royalties or anything like that, it's just awesome. It's like you just get nice comments and you just, you know, whistle at your work all day. Like, it's, it's so cool. Well, you know, one thing is, I would I will say this. I think since we do live in a capital, capitalist society that people value things more that are have a cost to them rather than are free, regardless of the item's actual quality, if they paid for it, they're like, they think it's a better game or whatever. I think there's, there's sort of an unconscious bias towards that, so... Um, you could, if you wanted to get, you know, uh, even if you're getting all your art and everything for free, uh, you might experiment to do a ransom or a uh, Kickstarter, and you could just like have a print option at cost or whatever. Our, what, that's what I did. Yeah. Our go pay what you want. Oh yeah, like, pay what you want. You just do that's the, really good. Like take it, yeah. yeah, take it for zero or give me a dollar or yeah. whatever you want to do. But I've had remarkable success with that. Like yeah. way more than I ever thought I would. Uh, like, I know I feel like a jerk if I do if I get something that's pay what you want I don't put in a buck. Well, I mean, I've made a print option in hopes of selling it, yeah. and I make way more money off of just like PDF downloads that could be completely free, just from nice people saying, "Here, have some money. Thank you for making a thing." And just that, it's business without the sin that it takes to spell business. Uh, it, it's awesome. Like it's not exploitative. People are just cool. You talk to them, and it's like a, a love fest. So right. yeah, do that. All right, uh, we'd be happy to talk in the hall. Uh, thank you all for coming. We re we re both really appreciate it. Uh, it was good talking to you. All right, for your games. Yeah.